Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Happy Father's Day to you all, all you dads out there. And uh, I got a sweet little card from my daughter this morning. It says, yum, donut, yum, donut. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. Have the best Father's Day with donuts. Apparently, she knows I'm on the low-carb diet, and she feels sorry for me. I love you. I have the best dad. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Hey, before we get going, I just want to say thank you so much to all uh, you volunteers that have been helping. Doesn't this place look great? Yeah. It's exciting. It's fun to see. I remember some of you out here scrubbing the gondola marks, which you can still see some of the shelving marks off this floor five years ago when we moved in here with only like you know, nine months guaranteed. We didn't even know if we'd be able to stay, and God's allowed us to purchase the, the property and now uh, to transform it and really make it into a place where we can position ourselves to, to better reach our community and better reach our world and continue to grow and expand. And so we're super excited about that. And thank you so much to all you that have been coming out and volunteering and to all of you, um, both who have given specifically to our building campaign as we've uh, been going along and also all you that just so faithfully support the church. We couldn't do this uh, without you. There's going to be some other ways to help coming up. Like Jason mentioned, Fridays is a great time to come out. Then that text list, we will keep you up to date. We shoot out about one text, sometimes two texts, a week and let you know, hey, we got a project coming up we could use some help with. Uh, one of those is back there. It's not going to stay yellow. So you're like, who is your interior decorator? I don't know about this. We're going to cover that with sound fabric. And uh, we need some people to help with that. It's going to be a, a, quite a project. In fact, Pastor Jason, you can barely see these because they blend in so well. Pastor Jason took all of the stage curtains and repurposed them into these amazing sound panels on the back of the wall. And he saved us thousands of dollars. And some of you helped put them up this week. So that's pretty cool. Um, If you are new around here or if you're just joining us for the first time in a while, uh, we just launched a new summer series in the book of Luke. And we've been working our way through the book of Luke verse by verse with plenty of breaks for other topics along the way. And uh, as I've been telling you, we are going to finish the book of Luke this summer. And so to get me there where we're heading. Let me just ask you, any, are there any new dads out there like in the last year or so? No? Recent dads? I know a lot of you have been having babies. I see them. So yeah, you're here. You're just shy. He's, that's because he thinks I'm going to bring, bring them up and make them do something, you know, like the diaper sniff test or one of those silly things you, you do at, at baby showers. Now, don't worry. Um, but here, here's all. Um, you remember You dads and all you moms too, you remember this. You remember bringing that newborn baby home from the hospital. Just so cute, so sweet, right? And you notice when the newborn in that first like little bit, there's something different about their cry. And it doesn't, I mean, it's kind of almost sweet for like three days, right? (laughs) And then three days later, you're just like, no, right? And dads, we like to do this thing. We jam the pillow over our head and pretend we don't hear Help me out, guys. You did it too, right? But here's the thing. The baby, how how does your infant, if you have an infant, or remember when you did have an infant, when when your child has a need, when your infant has a need, how does your child get its needs met? 
crying. Yes. That is its only way it gets its needs met, right? His or her needs met. When he's or she's hungry, cries, right? Tired, cries. Lonely, insecure, cries. Just needs some cuddles, cries. Has a blowout that covers him and everything within a three-foot radius in poo. He laughs then, right? Not, not cries. You've experienced that one. Now, the point is this, that the only thing your baby can do to get his or her needs met is to cry. That's, that's the only thing they can do, right? And so just tuck that away in your mind. We'll, it'll make sense here in a minute. And let's dive right into our text in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And just real quick, for those new to church, a parable is a made-up story uh, to make a point. And so he directs this story. He's about ready to tell a story specifically to a group of people, people who were confident in their own righteousness and who looked down on others. And your own righteousness, when you see this, your own righteousness means the things, anything that I think I can do to earn God's favor. Whatever actions, religious actions, I think I can take to make God happy with me. And before you think, well, this parable's not really for me, before you check out, um, let me just put it this way. You have probably had moments when you were pretty proud of yourself. And you think, God must be fairly impressed with me right now. I bet you've had the other moments, too, where you, you blew it in an area, and you felt like God must be very unimpressed with me right now. And then you got your act back together, and you did good for a period of time, and you checked off the re- religious box, been to church consistently, you know, gave faithfully, said my, my morning prayers. I didn't do that thing all the time. I feel like me and God are good. We can all probably identify with that at some point in our lives, right? And then we can all identify with this. We have all looked down on someone else and thought ourselves better than someone else, haven't we? We've all done that. So we might want to listen to this parable that Jesus says here. So he goes on in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, Pharisees were respected religious leaders. We often think of them in a bad light because they're going back and forth with Jesus all the time. But in the culture, in the day, other than the back and forth with Jesus that we have 2,000 years later recorded in the accounts of Jesus' life, these guys were the most respected guys around. They were the best of the best. They were the ones everybody wanted to aspire to be like. And so this is the Pharisee. The tax collector, on the other hand, Sometimes we get like a warm and fuzzy feeling about tax collectors because Jesus reached out to him. In fact, in, in uh, next week, I think it is, we're going to look at this character named Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in church, you know a song about this guy, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was? Thank you. I just identified who the Sunday school kids were out there. I'll stop singing now, don't worry. But here's the thing you got to know. A lot of times we get sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling about tax collectors. If you lived in the first century, you would not have had a warm, fuzzy feeling about tax collectors. They were leeches on society. These guys, the Roman Empire was a brutal, oppressive empire that would literally crucify thousands of people, line them up by the side of the road, and leave them hanging there for weeks for people to pass by just so you would know don't mess with Rome. 
and tax collectors would purchase the right to collect taxes for this oppressive, brutal regime. And then they would add a steep surcharge on top, which made them incredibly, incredibly wealthy. So basically, you, if you lived in the first century, you would feel about the same way you would feel the same way about them as you would about the 30-something-year-old guy that's hanging out down by the gas station by the school trying to sell meth to your kids. That's how you'd feel about tax collectors. And so that's what Jesus is setting up in this story here. And verse 11 says this, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now see, you know, other than the little snide remark about the tax collector, there's really not that much wrong um, with this prayer right on the surface level, right? Because he's, he's, it's a good thing to, to thank God for the things he saved you from, right? It's a good thing to recognize God. I, you know, I, I, I have an example from my youth of some, some good friends that I was best friends with. And these, these people, they lived across the street and they moved down the road and it was one of the best things that could have happened to me because they went down a path that ended up in prison and, and I ended up with a new set of friends. And as I look back, that was God's grace in my life in that area. And so it's a good thing to thank God. God, thank you that you saved me from that situation. Thank you that, you know, that's, that's, that's an okay thing, right? And then here's the thing about him. He is the best of the best. This guy is willing to do, I mean, he's all about spiritual growth. You can tell that from this prayer. Because not only does this guy tithe, like tithe, that's a tenth, right? He tithes faithfully. This guy tithes pre-taxes. He's the best of the best. That and he fasts. Now, unless you're doing like, you know, intermittent fasting or one of the fad things that's out there right now, there's nobody in this room that you're like, I just want to fast all the time, right? I mean, fasting, you know, when I fast, it's one of the best spiritual disciplines you can do. It does amazing things for you. Not always the most enjoyable thing in the world, right? And this guy voluntarily, where most of them, you know, you're supposed to fast once a week. This, this, guy's, this guy voluntarily fasted twice a week. He, he was into spiritual growth. He was way into it, right? So that's the Pharisee. And up to now, you know, there's not that much issue, except for when you really look into the heart of this prayer. In the Greek, there's five personal pronouns. There's five eyes. In other words, this prayer is really all about him. And in his thinking, I'm right with God because of what I do. I have leverage with God and earn his favor because of my discipline and my sacrifice. God and me are good. Not like that guy. And in our thinking here today, 2,000 years later, this is so common all around our society. Maybe, a lot, maybe some of you in the room, this is kind of your way of thinking. Is when it comes to God, I know I'm not perfect. I got my stuff, right? But I think I'm good enough. I think I can tip the scales in my direction and in my favor. And I think I can do enough that me and God, we're good. We're okay. That's what Jesus means when he talks about your own righteousness. Just good enough. Or we get in this place oftentimes where we want to leverage my goodness with God. That I think because I've done certain things, because I've checked off religious boxes, because I've, whatever, given, shown up at church, prayed, read my Bible enough consistently, 
that somehow I put God in my debt. And now God owes me this, or God owes me that. God owes me blessing in this area. And the problem with that for so many people, and this is so many people's story, is that when life doesn't go the way I want it to, I feel like God didn't keep up his end of the bargain. And that's the point where many people write off God in their lives and walk away. And so in the next three little short sections, Jesus is going to come down hard on this kind of thinking. In verse 13, he talks about the other guy, the tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. This is a sign of humility. And the way most Jews would pray is hands outstretched looking to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this request for mercy in the Greek can also be translated, cover me. In other words, cover my sins. His prayer is for God's forgiving compassion. He cries out for mercy. And this next sentence in verse 14 should be troubling to perhaps some in the room. He said, I tell you this man, the tax collector, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And justified here is actually a legal term. It means the judge finding in your favor. It means you owe a debt you cannot pay, and the debt is written off, and you're free. It means having that right standing and right relationship with God. And see, except for one little troubling word up here, we could, both, we could all just sort of hold hands and circle up and sing kumbaya, which did anyone ever sing kumbaya? You, yeah, okay. I always just made fun of singing kumbaya, but we actually never sang it in my church youth group growing up. But I know how it goes. I won't bother you with it right now. But we could just circle up and everybody could feel happy if they had both gone home justified, right? Because, I mean, come on, the other guy's a good guy. He's a good guy. I mean, yeah, he's got this little pride issue, but if we're honest, which one of us doesn't have an issue, a little bit of issue with pride, right? Which one of us hasn't looked down on someone else, thought ourselves better than someone else? Rather, he says, rather. And that's kind of troubling because in our culture, we have this idea that everyone kind of ultimately gets in, that everyone's kind of ultimately okay, you know, except Hitler or Ted Bundy or something like that, you know. But other than that, we're all kind of okay, right? That's not what Jesus says, is it? And that should be troubling to people who maybe grew up religious, should make us pause. So the next thing is this really cool scene, and it's one of these warm, fuzzy scenes in Scripture. So Jesus just tells this parable, pretty heavy stuff, and everybody would be like, wow, you got to be kidding me after this little Pharisee tax collector thing. And then the next thing, verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, Jesus 12 followers and maybe some of the other disciples, they rebuked them. 
But Jesus called the children and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Just real quick today. Um, there's all kinds of sermons in here, and all guys have done all sorts of different sermons in here, like about like how what God values isn't really what we value, about how the early followers of Jesus took what Jesus said here and cared for abandoned infants, and it transformed the, uh, the Roman Empire and the world ultimately, right? Or we could talk about children's church and kids' ministry and how that's every bit as valuable as what's going on in this room and how like really gathering you together just gives us a good excuse to share Jesus with your kids because statistically uh, the vast majority of people that meet Jesus do it over there, not right here. That's why we're so committed to kids' ministry. I could twist your arm and ask you and guilt you into serving in kids' ministry, which why don't I just pause and do that? (laughs) We need some of you to step up and impact the next generation. We need some of you to get involved in kids' ministry over here. It's one of the hardest areas for people to volunteer, and I understand that. But most of them don't bite, okay? (laughs) We've had almost a zero percentage ratio of teachers getting bitten. I'm just telling you that. So, all right. We would love to have some of you step up and volunteer. But, okay. Or, yeah. Or they. This is a cool thing in here. They, when it talks about they brought their infants, this is a masculine pronoun. And what that means is it's the men that are bringing their infants, their kids to be blessed by Jesus. And I think that's so rich, guys. This is our calling, isn't it? To be, but to be speaking Jesus into our home, to be blessing our kids, to be praying for them. Don't leave it all for mom to do, right? Get them here. Get them to this place regularly, consistency, consistently, where they're going to learn about Jesus, where they're going to be encouraged to grow. But don't let it stop at church. Let it go on in the home. That's what that Home Point Center is all about there, right? Talk about it when you sit down, when you stand up, when you go to work, when you lie down, all the Deuteronomy chapter 6. Any moment, in the van, on the way to the soccer field, talk about God. Talk about things of the Spirit. Speak blessing into your kid's life. Be praying for him, Right? So there's all those different sermons in there, but that isn't really the main point Jesus is making here. The main point he's making here, and it's really kind of troubling, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And I'm guessing because you're in church that you're pretty interested in inheriting eternal life, which we're going to see in a minute, or entering the kingdom of God, right? I am. And so I think if Jesus says that no one will enter it unless they receive it like a child, I think it would do us some good to pause and say, how does, how do children, how does an infant receive the kingdom? I think little children, when we think about little children, there's a few things that stand out about them, right? Little children, really little children, don't put on a mask, do they? They're just totally out there and authentic. There's no hiding. There's no posturing right? There's a genuineness. Also, they have a genuineness of faith in you parents, right? Dads, we're classic for this. We pull our kids' legs all the time and they just believe us, right? They trust you. There's an authenticity of faith in children. There's a genuineness. 
The other thing about little children is, is they negotiate from a position of weakness, not a position of power, don't they? They're real little ones. There's no terms. There's no leverage. Now, they figure this out pretty quick. But when they're really little, or they embrace life with their arms open wide, their hands open. Have you seen that? A little toddler running up to daddy or mommy, waiting to receive something good from their parents. Open-handed. They're open-handed. Also, they figure that one out pretty good, and you have to teach them to share, right? They're totally dependent on mom and dad for everything. Totally dependent. Remember what we started with? How do infants get what they need? They cry out, right? They cry out. They don't negotiate. They don't leverage their influence. I've, my kids watch this funny show sometimes called Boss Baby. It's, it's funny because it's for those that are older and don't have little kids that watch these kind of shows. Um, there's this baby, and then he has an older brother that's imagining this whole thing. But the boss baby is the actor, uh, the voice of Alec Baldwin. And he's like the CEO of the corporation. It's, it's really funny. But the baby's leveraging. Babies don't do that, do they? That's what makes the show so funny. Babies don't leverage, do they? They don't leverage their influence. They have no leverage. Babies, if they don't cry, they die. Their only hope is to cry out in need and wait for a a loving parent to meet that need. And that's what Jesus says. That's how you have to embrace the kingdom of God. Like that tax collector who cried out, cried out and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And literally, in the Greek, the worst of sinners. There's no hope for me unless you come step in. I'm not negotiating. I'm not leveraging. And Jesus says, this is if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to know what it means to to come into right relationship with God, here's how it works. And this last little section we're going to look at today really drives this home. Verse 18. If you grew up in church, you know this as the parable of the rich young ruler, the story, the account of the rich young ruler. It says this, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus talks about eternal life, really what's happening here is in the phrase, we just think of eternity as going on forever, and it means that, but really, literally, it's age life. It's the life of the age to come. An age that will go on forever. And in Jewish thinking, first century thinking, and in our thinking, the time when everything will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. When, when we live with the presence of God in a tangible, real way, when we see him face to face, when there's no more death, no more sorrow, everything's made right. And it's the, not just... Um, scholar N.T. Wright says it's not just the length of it, it's the quality of life that makes it so exciting. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it, like a, like a book that never ends and every chapter just keeps getting better. And that's what he's talking about here. How do I get that? How do I get that? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Now, here's what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying, no, 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 you got it wrong. 
I'm not God. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, this sense is, is actually a huge problem uh, for those that might be skeptical that say, like, Jesus is a good man, the, you know, a good man, but not, you know, a great moral teacher and a good man, not God. Because Jesus just says there's none good but God. So, you know, you got to kind of reconcile that whole thing a little bit, right? But here's what's happened, happening in this. Jesus is setting this guy up to, in just a second, accurately see the condition of his heart. Like we just said a moment ago, in our society, we kind of have the idea that all people are basically good. You know, well, there's a few rotten apples out there, the real evil ones. But, but most of us are basically good. And Jesus said, nope, humanity is basically sinful. That yes, all of humanity, there's goodness in us because we're all created in the image of God. But because of sin entering the picture back in Genesis 3 at the very beginning, we all are flawed and broken. Nobody had to teach you to be selfish, right? As that kid went past infant stage and became a toddler, no one had to teach them to close their hands tightly around everything that came into reach, right? Try to pry that candy out of that kid's hand, and you'll know what I mean. No one had to teach you that. It's inborn. In fact, Paul says it this way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short. And so this guy asks, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, well, you, you could keep the law perfectly. You could keep the law perfectly. And then he rattles off a few commandments, you know. A few commandments that he knows this guy think he's, thinks he's kept perfectly. Apparently, the guy's never listened to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, actually, you know, great, great job. You didn't commit adultery, but if you've lusted, you've actually done it in your heart, right? Great job. You've never murdered somebody, but if you've hated somebody, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. But even with, you know, that aside, Jesus leaves out a, a couple vital commandments in here, like have no other gods before me. No idols before the place of God. And oh, a real important one. Thou shalt not covet. Strongly desire what someone else has. And so Jesus gives him this answer. And, and he, this story is in uh, three of the Gospels this account, and so we, we get more information from some of the other ones. And we see that that's where you learn this guy's a rich young ruler. And we see that it says Jesus loved, looked at him and loved him. He wants to help this guy. He wants to reach him where he's at. And so he looks at him, and he, he says when he heard that, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me, follow me. And this is an interesting, difficult little passage, if you really stop and think about it. Because the guy asks, what do I do? The whole point Jesus is just made in this section about little children, about the tax collector, is it's not your own righteousness. In fact, that's one of the main themes of the whole New Testament that you get right relationship with God, not because of your own righteousness, but through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and the free gift that he gives you of eternal life and salvation, a work that he does. Even the faith is a work that he does in your heart. You see that all throughout the New Testament. 
And so, you know, a good principle always is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So the guy asks, what, what should I do? And Jesus gives him something to do. What's up with that, right? And here's the thing. Jesus knows this guy's heart. And he knows the obstacle. What's going on here is not, yeah, here, I'll just give you one more hoop to jump through and then you've earned it, buddy. No. The, the principle is Jesus says, come follow me. And Jesus gives him one thing to do that he knows is the main obstacle standing in the way of him saying yes to Jesus. Jesus knows his heart. And the God of his heart is his stuff. The God of his heart is his stuff. That's why a few chapters back, Jesus makes this huge statement, you cannot serve God in mammon. Most translations say money, but literally it's physical possessions. It's much more than just money, right? You cannot serve God in all this stuff. That you're going to choose one or the other to serve if, if, you, if stuff has your heart. So Jesus tells him, I want you to give up the one thing that I know is holding you back from following Sell it. I've got a much better investment strategy for you where, where you will have treasure in the age to come that will last forever. It'll be amazing. Amazing. Then come follow me. See, the invitation here to eternal life is to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to live the Jesus way. And that's how the, what the invitation has always been. For the first um, years of the early church, all the way through the book of Acts, in fact, the early Christians were called the way. The way. Why is that? Because it's the way of following Jesus. Following Jesus. Disciples of Jesus. And faith, a trust in God, and actually following him have never supposed to have been separated. And the problem is sometimes in, in the way we, we, we teach in church 2,000 years later in, in many churches like ours all around the world is, is because we, we know we don't earn salvation, we tend to separate the two. See, salvation is a work that God does. It's not something you earn. But the two are never meant to be separated because that genuine faith and trust in Jesus always will result in following him and doing what he says. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I command. And see, the hard message to a lot of people is that an emotional experience, once if there's never been a life of you know, anything, any inclination of following Jesus, man, that's a good time to just stop. Like Paul says, check yourself, search yourself, make sure you're really in the faith. Make sure your faith is genuine. So Jesus says, come follow me. That's the invitation here. And then Jesus encourages this guy to open his hands. And open versus closed hands. This is such a great principle. And, and I, man, when we moved into this building with only nine months on our lease and not knowing if, if uh, we would be able to stay in here or what God had in store for, my, for us. And I knew, man, moving into this big building, if in nine months from now we got to move out and start meeting like in a little cafe down the road or something. This isn't going to go real well, right? But I got up and I said, guys, we're just going to hold this with open hands. And an open-handed posture is the only way to live as a follower of Jesus. 
And that is, God, my time, my treasure, my talent, it's all yours. My life, it's yours. My hands are open. Lord, place in my hands whatever you want to place. Take out whatever you want to take out. I trust you. And the reason you can do that is if you really know in your heart that you have a good heavenly father who loves you and wants what's best for you. It's the only posture to live in as a follower of Jesus. And this is exactly what he asks this guy to do is open your hands. Get rid of the thing that's holding you back. And God often asks for that one thing that's holding you back from really running after him. Maybe that's your treasure. Do you trust me enough to give first? Do you trust me enough to give first? Maybe that's your time. Is there any space in your schedule for investing in anything beyond yourself? Is there? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's a moral life thing, you know, where there's a habit or there's an addiction or a clicking here kind of thing going on. He says, are you willing to let go of that? Maybe it's a relationship thing. You're dating somebody who doesn't share your faith or your values. You're going to choose to follow, run after Jesus? Maybe it's a control thing. You, and you just feel like you have the right to be angry and bitter at this person because of what they did. That's keeping you from really running after him. Are you willing to let go of that? Are you willing to let go of that? Maybe it's this leverage thing where you just feel like, God, I've done so much for you. What have you done for me? I've seen believers, followers of Jesus, that their walk with God is tanked because of anger, because of bitterness, because circumstances in their life, and they just say, God, I did this for you. Now you, you let this happen. That's a controlling kind of relationship with God. Are you willing to let go of that one thing? Verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He couldn't do it. Couldn't go there. Cost too much to follow Jesus. So Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Man, let me just tell you, if this was true then, it's so true today, isn't it? And here's why, because riches equals security. Riches equals me relying on me. Riches equals the power of I can provide for myself. I can leverage my resources. So our tendency is to approach God like that. Like we have enough. We have what it takes. Riches equals I can fill that emptiness in my life with another shiny toy or another exotic vacation. That's a luxury that, you know, real, really poor people don't have, right? And it does. It fills the gap for a while, doesn't it? Until it gets the first scratch. Until the shine wears off. You know, here's the thing, guys. Most of us in this room are in the top couple percent of wage earners worldwide. And so I think we should pay attention and see how this applies to us, Right? Because we have the ability of endless distractions in our life, don't we? 
Endless things that we can place in front of God in our relationship with God. Endless things that seem shinier than the cost of following Jesus. And the truth is we often never just sit down and sit still long enough to contemplate where we're actually at in our relationship with God or to contemplate the shortness of life or what comes next, right? And so the people around Jesus are shocked because they believed riches were a sign of blessing and of favor. And this guy was the best. He was like a cultural icon. He was the rich young ruler. Everybody knew his name. Everybody wanted to be like him. And so they're thinking, if he's not in, what does that say about me? They're shocked. And they ask, who can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I love that. It's possible when the Holy Spirit breaks through and draws you to Jesus and you respond and say yes to him. It's possible. It's possible when you remain dependent on God. Jesus says in John that I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And you can't do anything of lasting or eternal significance apart from him. It's possible when you stay in step with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. In Romans 8, 8, 8.1, it says this, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's the only way you can live open-handed. The Spirit setting you free. Paul says in Galatians, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit. See if you want any of this stuff in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And that means the Spirit says, we're going here. Taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I want you to pause. I want you to have that conversation. I want you to course correct. And see, here's here's the tension that in this whole thing is we live in this area where we think if I can just earn it, if I can just check off boxes, if I can just be good enough. And Paul says it's all about living and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's all about. Staying in step with the Spirit. And so the challenge for the Spirit, for the Follower of Jesus is when you mess up, when you get off, off track, when you blow it again, you repent, you cry out again to God, forgive me, and then you just get back in step with the Spirit. Forgive me, let me, fill me afresh, let me live and walk in the Spirit. Verse 28, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. This isn't some kind of prosperity gospel. You give God 10, he gives you 100 back, guaranteed. Everything in life is gonna be easy. This isn't something like that. Here's here's what this means. The richness of a life following Jesus far outweighs anything you let go of. When you live with open hands, you will have more joy and fulfillment now 
than you get from those things you're holding on to. You will experience peace and freedom. Isn't that what you want in your life? When you live with closed hands, it reveals something about your heart. It reveals that you don't really believe that God wants what's best for you. And so I'm going to leave you just with this little takeaway, and I want to invite Winston up. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Will never enter it. Let me just say this. For those of you on the fence about following Jesus, that just something's holding you back, is there anything worth more than knowing you are right with God? Could there be anything worth more than that? Is there anything worth more than eternity? And for longtime followers of Jesus, uh, the founder, uh, John Wimber, the founder of our network of churches, says this, the way in is the way on. And what that means is, did you start out with a childlike dependence on God? And have you lost it somewhere along the way? Is there just no fruit in your life and you realize you've been trying real hard to do this thing on your own, but you have not been drawing near or living in the power of the Holy Spirit? And you need to say, God, I'm sorry. I got out of step. Fill me fresh. Fill me new. Let me walk by your power again. Let me come like a child again to you, understanding I'm fully dependent on you. I need you. And for all of us, if you want to stand right now, I just want to encourage you to live with your hands open. Open your hands and let go of whatever is holding you back from really following Jesus. Will he ask you to sell everything? I don't know. Probably not. He deals with everyone individually based on their heart, right? But it is a good question to ask. How are you doing with your stuff? Do you have your stuff or does it have you? And for those in the room that maybe have been trusting in your own righteousness to tip the scales in your favor and you think, I've been doing pretty good. Maybe as I've been speaking, you feel the Holy Spirit impressing on you and it's like, oh, I need Jesus. You need Jesus. I want you to acknowledge your desperate need for Jesus as we sing this next song. In the quietness of your heart or out loud, pray to him. Ask for forgiveness. Commit in your heart. Decide to follow him with everything you have. And we're going to sing this next song. It's a beautiful song. We haven't sung for a long time around here, but it's just called As Children. As children, we come with arms open wide. And let's just re be reminded of our dependence and our vital need for Jesus as we sing. Let's sing, and then I'll come back up here, and I'll let you guys go. Yes, Lord, fill us. Be Lord of our hearts. Come fill this church once again, Lord. Lord, revive hearts that are dry and cold. Wake them up. Bring them back to life. Draw people to you, Jesus. Fill this place up with people who need you and who are desperate for you and crying out to you. We love you. We worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.